We're continuing on in our series called Joy and the Epist- Paul's epistle to uh, the Philippian church. And uh, this topic of joy is very important during this time because uh, we live in a very uncertain, very chaotic, very um, trying world. Many of us at this church are going through very tri- various trials, testings, and temptation, and uh, not the least of which is all of the adjustments we've had to make during COVID. The Apostle Paul focused on the theme of joy in Philippians, and he drew several um, sources of his spiritual joy throughout the epistle as he highlighted that to the church in the first century and to us in the 21st century. He talked about having joy from seeing the gospel advance. He talked, he's talking about in Philippians having joy and seeing the unity of the church. He's talking about having joy in making sure that God's people are not robbed of their joy from false teachers. And he's talking about joy in knowing that there are other believers that are partnering with him in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so over the past two weeks, uh, we've looked at Paul's, uh, what does a joyful prayer look like as Paul prayed in Philippians chapter one? Um, We've looked at how Paul took joy over knowing that his life was advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how that, through that, he made friends, frenemies, and, uh, and foes, which we'll return back to next week. And today, we're going to look at having spiritual joy amidst uh, our trials. How did Paul have spiritual joy? How did he stay focused spiritually and have spiritual joy amidst the trials that he was encountering being locked in a Roman prison cell, having been beaten, tortured. Um, How did he maintain his spiritual focus so that he can have joy? And we're not going to be in the same situation as Paul anytime soon. But I think what we can do is learn from Paul. How did Paul face extreme challenges, his trials, his sufferings? How did he maintain joy amidst that? by staying spiritually focused. That's what we're going to focus on here this morning. Um, Paul wrote to the Philippian church. This was a church, as you know, that he planted uh, in Acts chapter 16 as he led Lydia and many women to Christ, used Lydia's house as a base of operations, led other people to to Christ, established the Philippian church. Uh, You know that this is a church that Paul, throughout his ministry, visited at least three times. Um, He suffered for this church. He was put in prison along with uh, Silas, beaten, released. And he built up the church in their faith. He's writing to the Philippian church to encourage them, to warn them, to thank them for partnering with him in ministry. And when he writes Philippians, he is at this point writing somewhere around 10 years after he planted the church. So this is maybe a decade later. And he's writing from a Roman imprisonment. A Roman basically is under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard. Chain was about 18 inches long, so he would have a Roman guard around his, you know, connected to his wrist for about two years. And uh, these were elite Roman imperial guards uh, that were appointed to um, protect Caesar. And so uh, Paul used this time of his imprisonment to write Ephesians. Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, these two years. He used this time redemptively to write these epistles, 
to share his faith in Christ with the imperial guard, which they then went and evangelized their friends among the Roman guards. He uses time to have visitors and, and witness to them. So Paul used this time redemptively for the gospel. And I think what we're going to see today is that it was in that decision during the most trying circumstances to use the time redemptively that Paul was able to maintain his spiritual joy. And I think we can learn from that in several ways of what Paul was doing there. So let's uh, look at Philippians chapter um, 18. I'm, I'm chapter 1, verse 18, the second part of verse 18, all the way to verse 26. Let's stand now and read God's word together. Philippians chapter 1, last part of verse 18 to verse 26, our next passage. Paul writes this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is to my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now and as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For I am to live, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray together. Father, we commit this time, and as Paul drew... Uh, a sense of spiritual strength as he was able to rejoice in difficult circumstances. Um, this is not for us to look at Paul and say, what a wonderful man, but it is to look at him and say, um, this is what is possible through Christ. And this is how we can apply what Paul did to help us in whatever trial and uh, testing we are going through. And so, Lord, would you uh, speak to us through your word, build us up, um, convict us, and lead us in the way of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I can have a seat. Thank you. Um, so in our passage, we see Paul rejoicing. He says in the latter part of verse 18, Yes, I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Paul is not rejoicing in the fact that he was probably dirty, filthy, chained to a guard, couldn't go where he wanted to go for at least two years. He wasn't rejoicing in the fact that uh, he had a lot of physical pain in his body. I mean, he's probably, you know, just like you and me. He had to fight through that. What he was rejoicing in is that amidst all of that, Christ was sustaining him. Amidst all of that, he could look at his life and say, um, I wouldn't have chosen these circumstances for myself, but now that I'm in it, I can have peace and I can have joy because I know that my life is devoted to the right things. This is very important because when we look at Paul, uh, we can easily look at Paul and say, well, that's you, Paul. It's not me. You met Jesus. 
You were chosen as a, uh, a super apostle. You wrote like a third of the New Testament or, or more. Uh, that's you, not me. I'll never be like that. Uh, but that's good to know that that's possible. It's easy to look into that mistake and think that about Paul. It's also to look and say, well, um, you know, if you ever meet Christians and they go through this trial and they're immediately praising God and saying, oh yeah, praise God, praise God for this. And you look at that and to be honest, I look at that and I say two things. I say, well, you know, if you authentically mean that, then that's powerful. That's an awesome testimony to what God is doing in your life. Well, you can go, you can, you know, lose a child and then immediately, you know, be rejoicing that you have God and, or you can lose your job or you can have a diagnosis of cancer and immediately walk out of there with a sense that your joy is undiminished. And I think there are Christians like that in this world and they are mature and they are someone that uh, I want to aspire to. But the thought, the second thought I have when I see Christians react to really dramatic trials and testimonies and pain and suffering in their life, and they immediately start praising God, I start to think, you know, is that fake Christianity? You know, are, are you, do you really mean that? Are you, are you really in that place? Or are you really doing it because you just feel like you're trying to do something that really isn't a reflection of what's in your heart? And so I think there are these, these two kind of two mistakes that we make as Christians when we see uh, a thing like uh, Paul say, yes, I will rejoice. If you really knew Paul's circumstances, you would wonder, how is this guy rejoicing? And I think we don't want to look at him and say, well, I'll never be him. That was just him. I don't, I think we don't want to look at that and say, well, you know, we want to fake rejoice. I think what we want to do is to say, look, if I was in a situation like that, um, I want, I, I may be complaining. I may be, um, shedding my tears. I may be anxious. And I'm sure Paul had all of that too. But I'm striving forward amidst all that. And that's the key. The Christian faith is not simply about stop and go. Um, I'm either go, I'm attaining to this perfect state of rejoicing amidst my imprisonment, or I'm just nothing. I'm stopped. And, and I'm just a, such a failure. I think the way we look at rejoicing in moments like this is we say, when I'm in my own imprisonment, I'm human. I'm going to be disappointed. I'm going to shed tears. I'm going to be anxious. I might complain. But what I need is to maintain a base commitment in my faith that whatever is happening that's causing this suffering upon my life, will not ultimately steal my joy. I will not allow myself to become ultimately bitter towards God. I will not allow myself to abandon God altogether. Yes, I, I will waver up and down my faith, and I'm, you know some days will be better, but I will not allow that to happen. I will not allow the enemy, the world, and the flesh to completely steal my joy. And I think that's a realistic way of looking at that. Uh, in verse, and so we're going to look at several things of now, follow me on this, how Paul maintained his joy. 
Why was Paul able to say, I can rejoice? I will rejoice amidst these difficult circumstances. Why was he able, and what can we learn from that? That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time doing. Okay, so for, for whatever imprisonment, whatever prison you're in here this morning, your health, your job situation, your finances, broken relationships, um, evil coming upon you, whatever that might be, you want to be asking yourself from this point forward, what can I learn from Paul so that if I find myself in this prison for some time, uh, I will waver at times, but it will not steal my joy ultimately. What can I learn from Paul? Number one, let's look at verse 19. Paul said, for I know that through your prayers, let's stop there. The first thing that maintained Paul's joy was that he knew there were other Christians that were praying for him. He shared about his imprisonment with the Philippian church and other churches. He was not shy about this. He was very open about this. He let other Christians know, I'm in a prison. He didn't try and deal with his imprisonment on his own. He felt it was not only his responsibility to tell other Christians, but he also needed the prayers of other Christians. Paul did not try and go go through this alone. You see this throughout Paul's epistles. You see that when he wrote to the church at Rome, in the book of Romans, Romans 15, 30, he said, Now I urge you, brethren, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Paul wrote to the Roman church and he said, I urge you, I'm begging you, strive together in, to pray for me, to pray to God for me. He's begging them to pray for him. He wrote to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. He said, Ephesians, with all perseverance, make known, uh, may, pray for me so that, that uh, I will make known the boldness of the mystery of the gospel. He's writing to the Ephesian church and asking them to persevere in praying for him so that he may have boldness in sharing the gospel. He said to the Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, he said, Thessalonians, pray for us that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be glorified. He said to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, listen to this long prayer. Listen to how Paul appeals to the Corinthian church to pray for him. Listen to this prayer I'm about to read to him, uh, to you from 2 Corinthians 1, about how Paul's very open about sharing his trials and imprisonment. And as you listen to this, think about how you're sharing with the body of Christ about your own imprisonment, about how you're pleading with the body of Christ to pray for you. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. For we do not want you, Corinthians, to be unaware, brothers, 
of the affliction we, that's Paul, experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. This is Paul talking. Let me read that again. Paul the apostle, Paul the super apostle, is now telling the Corinthian church, let me read it again, we want you to be aware we were utterly burdened beyond our strength and we were despairing of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Paul's revealing an extraordinary amount of vulnerability, of humanity, of need. And he goes on to say, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, when you share openly about what your imprisonment is, when you share and you you come upon the body of Christ and say, I need your person. And it's not just the, notice he's saying, he's talking to the Corinthian church. He's not just talking to any one pastor. You don't want to look at this and say, the takeaway is I need to share everything just solely with Pastor Chris. He's sharing this with the entire body of Christ to pray for him, just as you need to share with the body of Christ, whether that's you know, a personal other person in your life at the church or someone in your small group, someone that you come up for prayer after the service, whatever that might be. But he's saying, I did this and I involved you in my life. I asked you to pray for me so that it would be known that I'm not relying on myself, but I'm relying on God. He goes on to say in this passage, he delivered us from such deadly peril and he will deliver us and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. Notice what Paul's doing. When he says in verse 19 of our passage, I know that through your prayers, he is saying to us that he understands that asking other Christians to pray for you is a way of giving God's glory. It's a way of giving God glory. Because when God answers that prayer, when he sustains the Christian, you can then report back and say, look how great your God is. And it builds up the faith of other believers. There is no nobility in keeping your imprisonment to yourself. And what I like about Paul is that even amidst his various imprisonment, he's always giving updates in this prayer. He was saying, he delivered us from such a deadly peril. He delivered us. On him we have set our hope. He will deliver us again. And see, the other thing that he's telling people how God answered these prayers. This is what it means. To go through an imprisonment and to retain your joy. You got to involve other Christians You've got to be open with what your prison is. You've got to implore them to pray with you. You've got to report back when there's a victory in your life 
so that God can have glory and other believers can be built up and that you can rejoice. Prayer and involving the body of Christ in that journey through prayer is critical to maintaining your joy. He goes on to say this in verse 19. And I also have the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ. And this will turn out for my deliverance. Verse 19. The second thing that Paul did was not only do he involve the body of Christ in prayer, but he also remembered that the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ in him was for him. He, he remembered that the Spirit of Jesus Christ was there to help him. Do you remember or have you forgotten that Jesus is for you? That he is there to help you. That God does not leave you in your time of need. Paul knew that it wasn't just the prayers of the saints that he needed. That he was relying on the spirit of Jesus Christ. And the spirit, verse 19, wanted to help Paul. The spirit, verse 19, wanted to deliver Paul. And Paul expressed confidence in the Lord's deliverance. I think we need to be more bold in our prayers. I think we need to start praying less prayers of God, if it be your will, deliver me. Of course, it's always God's will, whether he wants to do that or not. But I think what I like about Paul, verse 19, again, that this will turn out for my deliverance. That we should start praying prayers that, Lord, I have confidence that you will deliver me. I have confidence that I, as I'm involving the body of Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And you express that confidence to God. You express that confidence to the body of Christ. So that you are not continually portraying yourself as a hopeless victim. There are too many hopeless believers out there. We're believers, but we live hopeless lives. We need to have more. And this is not simply a matter of just suck it up, you guys. This is a matter of if you want to know what maintained Paul's joy, this is what it looked like. I am sure that Paul didn't say, oh, I'll express confidence to God only when I you know, feel like I'm well-fed, well-cleaned, everything's going well, then I can express it. I think there's mornings where he woke me and said, you know, I, I have to choose. I have to choose to believe that God will deliver. And I have to choose to express to others my faith. Maybe I'm not even fully believe it, but I'm going to choose it. If you wait until you 100% believe it, you're going to be waiting a long time in your prison. And there's a choice that has to be made. And you have the power. Why? Because... You have the Spirit of Jesus Christ helping you. So Paul rejoiced because he involved others in prayer for him. He rejoiced because he, he remembered that the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ was to, there to help him and to deliver him. Number three. You know, uh, just actually one more point on this. It is amazing. When you listen, let me go back to this one last thing. Expressing confidence in God's deliverance, all right? 
when you listen to sports teams, a coach in sports, when you listen to people who talk about the financial markets, when you listen to people who are in the military, generals, coaches, uh, people who run companies, they do not talk in language of, well, you know, if, if we plan well, you know, we might win this battle, we may not. We'll just have to see what happens. Coaches do not go out to their team before and say, well, you know what, if, if the things go our way, you know, there's, there's good possibilities we could win, but, you know, we'll just, we'll just have to just look. And, and if we win, great. If we don't, you know, it's just kind of out of our control. No one talks like that. What do they say? They say, you know, we're going to go out, we're going to do this, and we were going to have victory. They say, you know what, if we execute, this will happen. They say, we have confidence in what is happening. And why does the world have more confidence in its sports, its military, its business, and their leaders and how they talk? Then we have confidence in our God. And it is not to say, oh, I have confidence God will give me a million dollars, therefore he, he will. But if you're talking about deliverance from the prison, we have got to be expressing more confidence that God will help and deliver. Okay? All right. Moving on now, in verse 20, Paul goes on to say, it's my eager expectation and hope. He's saying that I do not expect, verse 20, to be ashamed, but I have full courage that Christ will be honored in my body. I have full courage that Christ will be honored in my body. Paul had confidence that what his life was about in this prison, that he would not turn out to be ashamed, that Christ would be honored. You could take away Paul's health. You could take away his reputation uh, among the false teachers. You could take away uh, his freedom to move about. But Paul was mostly concerned to say, I do not want to be ashamed. I will not be ashamed. Christ will be honored here. When I was sitting in that hospital, um, thinking about last few years of my life, I was thinking about where, what I was doing, laying in that bed. And um, I thought about, you know, you have a long time to think when you're sitting in a bed for five days. I was thinking about the last few years of my life and ways that um, I had held up Christ and dishonored Christ. And then I was thinking about my, this time in the hospital. I was thinking, you know what? Whatever happens to me, I am not going out if I go out uh, dishonoring Christ. My, my last act here in this world is not going to be known as, oh, he lost faith or he was you know, so fearful of death that he, he just collapsed. Or he, he, he in no way gave any kind of witness to faith in Christ. That's not how I'm going out, okay? I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm going to honor Christ. And I think that's where Paul was. When he was in these trying circumstances, 
this is what it does. And this is part of the beauty of trials, temptations, and testings. Is that when the, you're in the pressure cooker, when you're in the prison, um, it really forces what is at the core of you to come out. And what for Paul, it was not, God, just help me get out of this prison. God, just help me to have better health. God, just help me to have my freedom back. God, just, you know, silence all the people who, you know, are, are trying to share the gospel, but with bad motives to inflict upon me while I'm in this prison. He wasn't saying that. His primary concern was, may Christ be honored amidst the circumstance. Next, verse 21. He said, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. I think there's something very similar here going on in verse 21 as there was in verse 19. In verse 19, he says, it is through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. See, Paul knew that Jesus Christ was not just someone to believe in. He was someone to believe in and someone who lived in him. And so when it is the spirit of Jesus Christ that was living in him, when he was saying to live is Christ, follow this, he is not just talking about saying, Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. He rose again from the dead. I owe him everything. I will believe in him. And so now I owe him. I owe him to live for him. Yes, he was saying that, but it wasn't just that. This was not just a debt of gratitude that he owed to Christ for all that Christ had did for him as his Lord and Savior. It was a debt of gratitude, but it was also to live as Christ is to know that Christ is the one who is living in you. And so to live as Christ is not, I'm just living for Christ, but Christ is living through me. And that's very important. Because if you just look at your Christian faith and you say, to live as Christ is because I owe Christ, that's not untrue. But it can easily start to look at the Christian faith as simply like, Buddhism or works. I got to do this for Christ because I owe him and I'm indebted. It is that, but really at the core of it is that Christ takes possession of you. He lives in you. He dwells in you. And so now as we live, what seems impossible to live in the prison now becomes possible because it's not you. It's Christ living his life through you. And to live is Christ is for Christ to live in you and me. And that is the difference between Christianity and Buddhism. It is the difference between Christianity and Islam. That is the difference between Christianity and Hinduism. That is the difference between Christianity and secular humanism. Is that we have Christ, the living God, living in us. To live is Christ, is to live for Christ, but to have Christ live through us. To die is gain. Because we're with Christ. And now he gives some more reasons that maintained his joy. We've looked at he maintained his joy that he had others praying for him. He maintained his joy because he remembered that the Holy Spirit of Jesus lived through him. He maintained his joy because he remembered he needed to honor Christ. 
and not be ashamed. And now we look at a couple more reasons why Paul had his joy amidst his own imprisonment. Number, uh, the next point is that he maintained his joy because he was making disciples of Jesus Christ. He was making disciples of Jesus Christ. In verse 22, and then we'll look at 24, 25, and 26 all together. Verse 22, and then verse 24 through 26. Listen to what motivated Paul, what drove him, what kept his joy. It was knowing that he had been making disciples of Jesus Christ. Verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I choose, I cannot tell. Let's skip on down to verse 24 through 26. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. Paul was in his prison But one of the things that kept his joy was he was like, you know what? I'm stuck here, but I know that what my life has been about has been making disciples, seeing fruit in their life. Fruit, whenever you see the term biblical fruit in the New Testament, it's basically defined in in three ways. Okay, you you hear bear fruit, right? What does bear fruit mean? Number one, bear fruit means uh, it means the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Fruit is bared through your spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. The Spirit produces his fruit in your life. Number two, fruit is talked about in terms of the fruit of goodness. God's goodness is upon and comes out of your life. And number three, fruit is talked about in terms of converts. Uh, the fruit of people coming to faith through your life and witness. So when the Bible says fruit, it's talking either character transformation, goodness, or God using you to see other people's lives um, enter the kingdom of God. And that's why he says in verse 22, if I live here, that means more fruitful labor for me. Uh, verse 24, again, if I remain, it's necessary on your part. Verse 25, you will progress in joy in the faith. Verse 26, you'll come, my coming will give you ample uh, opportunity to glory in Christ. See, we have to have the joy of seeing other people grow in their faith. We have to have the joy of seeing other people led to faith. One of the things that helps you to persevere in the prison is that when you're sitting there, you can know my life before the prison was about the right eternal things. There was fruitful, there was fruit in my life and ministry that will carry on beyond me. My life was about the things that will matter for eternity. My life was about the glory of God. My life was about seeing other people find the Lord. We don't know when our time will come. We really don't. If this thing escalates in Europe, those people are going to die, a lot of them. And, you know, a lot of young Ukrainians were at the club last week thinking that 
you know, Russia's not going to attack. Maybe they won't. What if they do? Those young people at the club a week ago, some of them are going to die at a young age. You never know when your time will come. But when it does, if you have moments before the end comes, you got to be able to be like Paul. It's not going to be enough, you guys, when you get put in the prison for you to sit there and say, yeah, my life was about my career, my school, my riches, my fame on the internet, social media. That's not going to do it. What's really going to sustain you is saying, was this about the right kind of fruit? I can tell you that from personal experience. Um, I want to read to you um, an entry from one of my books. It's a new entry. I just wrote it yesterday. I'm, I'm adding it last minute. Um, and it talks about we live in a world where everyone's an evangelist and everyone's a disciple maker. And it's important because Paul's saying there is fruit. You may glory in Christ. He saw himself as an evangelist and a disciple maker, and so are you. But you know what? So is everyone else out there nowadays. So is everyone else in the world. Do you realize that about this cultural moment, this moment in the 21st century? You are surrounded by a world of evangelists and disciple makers. The question is not, are you going to evangelize? Are you going to make disciples? The question is, the whole world is doing it. Are you going to participate in doing something that the world has become very good at, but which God calls you to? So it's called, this entry is called A Planet of Evangelists and Disciple Makers. Very short. I'm just going to read you part of it, not the whole thing. Um, in the past, the church here in the West has focused on interacting with the world in the following ways. We have focused on sending missionaries to evangelize the unreached parts of the world for Christ to fulfill the Great Commission. We have interacted with the world by preparing ourselves apologetically to defend the faith from uh, cults that show up at our doorstep. We have urged ourselves to not conform to the world's pattern of evil thinking and pop culture expressed through music, movies, books, videos, gaming, and adult entertainment. We have even identified alternative secular religions, such as American sports and politics, that we have at times become, that have at times become houses of worship for us. But today, we now live on a planet that is full of a new kind of evangelist and disciple-maker, our world is rapidly being converted, not into the kingdom of God, but into the kingdom of being human. Everyone out there is now an evangelist and disciple maker for their definition of what it means to be human. Today, our society is driven to fix the immense problems of our broken human relationships and is obsessed with its vision for human flourishing. Spiritual gurus have become our cultural prophets, promising us the path to healing and peace for the human soul. Blockchain technologies are talked about 
as offering freedom from institutional tyranny and control. Environmentalism has become a widespread religious quest to save ourselves for a more sustainable future. Social justice movements are calling people to the heroic task of establishing heaven on earth through human justice, rights, and equality. Metaverse prophets summon us to a future where we will move in invisible worlds that will reinvent human identity and create new forms of human community and human value. Everyone out there is now an evangelist and disciple maker, is the church. This is what get Paul going. He looked at his situation in his imprisonment and he said, I have evangelized people to the right thing. I've made disciples of the right person. And that is what will maintain my joy in the prison. And finally for today, um, Paul maintained his joy by keeping a heaven, heavenward focus. A heaven focus. He focused on heaven. And that maintained his joy. Verse 23, he says, I am hard pressed between the two. Staying with you? That's the other option. Verse 23, but my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. My desire is to be with Christ, for that is far better. He wanted to stay because he knew that the Philippian church needed him. Uh, he built them up. He, he was seeing fruit, and they would bring them great joy to the praise of God. He wanted to stay, but he knew that far better was to depart and be with Christ. I think we need to be honest when we read this. I think that we read what Paul said here, where he said, verse 23, my desire is to depart to be with Christ, and that is better. I think that when we read that, we tend to look at Paul and say, that's awesome. That's what I should aspire to. But the reality is, for many of us, we don't look at it that way for our lives right now. We understand the theology behind it. We understand that that's how Paul looked at it. But I think if we're honest, a lot of us would rephrase that and we'd say something like this. We're not saying that, oh, to depart and to be with Christ is better. I think for a lot of us, we'd like to be that person. But I think for a lot of us, we're not quite there. What we would say is we would say, I believe that when I do depart, I will be with Christ. I do believe that. But if I'm honest, I would rather kind of stay here now to enjoy my life here now. I'm married. I want to see my kids grow up. I have a whole career in front of me. I don't want to die. I want to enjoy this life. And yeah, you know, if I'm 85, my body's breaking down. Okay, I'm ready. Or if I, I you know, I'm suffering and I, you know, it's like, okay, I'm ready. But if I'm in good health, if I've got my whole life in front of me, I believe that when I die, I will be with Christ. I believe that will be better than the alternative hell. But if I'm honest, do I really see that? And I'm like, I'm like 
want to go now because I really want to do that. I think a lot of us, if we're honest, we would say, no, I want to enjoy everything that my life has for me right now. You know one thing that struck me when I was in the hospital, and this was, I've, I've been very honest with you guys about this. One of the reasons why my hospital stay shook me was not because I doubted where I was going when I died. I had no doubt about that. What shook me was how it revealed in my own life to me how much I wanted to stay in this world. And that took me by surprise. Now, yeah, do I love my wife? Do I love my kids? Do I enjoy material things? Yeah, I do. I'm just like you. But what shook me was like, wow, you know what? Here I see Paul saying, my desire is to be with Christ that is far better. He was ready. He was desiring that. He saw, could I say that? And I've had to reflect on that side of me. How much, how committed am I to this world? Not in terms of it being my savior, but to me, just wanting to really stick around when it came down to it. And what do I really believe uh, about how I should be spending my time here? Uh, I'll tell you this out of my personal opinion. Um, I'll tell you this out of what I think is wisdom and life experience. I'll tell you this out of someone who's pretty much older than everyone here, I think. Um, and has probably been a Christian here longer than many of you. This is my personal opinion, okay? I think that the way, follow me on this, the gap gets closed between what Paul was saying and where Paul was at. I desire to depart and be with Christ. That's much better. I'm willing to go now. I think how you close the gap between what Paul was saying and where a lot of us are at, which is, I believe when I die, I will be with Christ, but I really want to hold on to this as long as I can, this life in this world. I believe the way that gap gets closed is in the following ways. Now, you can, I can say to you, read the Bible more and pray more. I agree with that. I'm not saying it's not that, okay? That said, Practically, I think that the gap gets closed in some of the following ways. Number one, it gets closed when you just get older. <laughs> and uh, you have a better sense of your own mortality. You guys who are in your 20s, you don't have a grasp of your mortality unless you have a life-threatening like illness or you know, your life almost ended or you, you have like been exposed to a lot of death in an extraordinary amount, then that maybe you do. But for a lot of you who are younger, 20s, even 30s, teens, you don't think about your mortality in the same way people who are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s do. You just don't. You haven't lived long enough. And I think the longer, the older you get, the, the easier it is to close that gap. To say, you know what, this world is not really where it's at. And sometimes that just comes, that sanctification comes over time as you get older. I think you close the gap uh, when you go through extreme hardship. And it's that extreme hardship in your life where you say, you know, I, I see with greater clarity what suffering 
and pain and agony this world can inflict upon me. And I want to just get out of this, not by taking my own life, but I know that the world cannot offer me what I need. I think you close the gap when you start to see with greater clarity how evil the world can be, how unrepairable the evil in the world, unrepairable the evil in the human heart is outside of Christ. When you finally start to grasp that, then you start to say, you know what, this, this world, it is really only eternity that matters. And I think finally, you start to close the gap between what Paul was saying in verse 23 and where we need to be when you can look at your life and say, my life has been about doing the work of God. My life has been about, like Paul could say, leading others to faith, seeing fruit in their life, seeing them praise God through Christ. And if you can say that about your life, the more you can say that about your life, not only will you be able to maintain your joy, but you will be able to close the gap and to say, you know what? It's okay. It's okay. I not only can say, I know that I will be with Christ when I pass on, but I know it's okay if he chooses to take me early because my life has been about the right things. Okay? And so there's a lot we can learn from Paul about joy and maintaining that. Let's, let's follow that example, you guys. And let's pray together. Father, as we close this morning, uh, may the world the flesh, the enemy, not steal our joy. May we come away from this place following not just Christ, but following the example of Paul who maintained his joy in his own imprisonment. Lord, there are some here who are in their own prison and your desire for us this morning has been to know that you are for us and to know that we have a responsibility to focus on the kingdom of God. The world will not give us joy. It will take it from us. Uh, We need to turn to you and move with you to take it back. And I pray that that would be the case for us here at the church. In Jesus' name, amen.